Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode 100. We made it. This is the 100th episode of Explore the Space podcast. And I am absolutely thrilled that we are in this position and I am so excited about everything that's happened and I am thrilled about what the future holds for this show. I started this in May of 2015 and we've been going strong ever since. The archive is something that I'm really, really proud of. The show is absolutely packed with extraordinary people who, who get an email or a tweet from some guy named Mark Shapiro that they've never heard of who says, hey, I've got this podcast. Do you want to come on the show? I don't pay my guests. This is just an opportunity to come on the show and have interesting people come and discuss the incredible things that they're doing. I'm always blown away by how excited people are to come on the show and share the incredible things that they're doing. And the people that come on this podcast are truly doing incredible things. And I feel very, very fortunate to be in a place where I get to sit with them for a few minutes, either in person or virtually, to talk about the wonderful, moving intelligent, creative, expansive, and empowering things that are happening in the world around us, with the whole goal being to close the space between those who are in healthcare and those who seek healthcare. And I get asked all the time, Mark, who's your audience? Who are you trying to get this show out to? And I tell them, look, it's everybody. At some point in our lives, we all come in contact with healthcare, whether it's for ourselves or for a loved one, or because we work in the industry, or we work in parallel with the industry. No one is immune to the world of healthcare, and the whole goal of this show is by finding interesting stories, by having extraordinary people talk about the things that they do, we can all get a little bit more transparency, a little bit more familiarity, and a little bit more comfort with that world of healthcare. When you go to the show and you look in the archive, the podcast archive is just fantastic, and we have built four pillars of content in the show. There's illness and recovery, there's the mental and physical edge, there's leadership and culture, and there's innovation and education. You can click on any one of those and you will find unbelievable people who do unbelievable things and they share those with us. I hold every single episode very dear. I've learned something from every single one, things that I think about and utilize every single day. And for me, that is really valuable and it feels really special. And that's what I want for people who find this show and who listen to the show, to gather those lessons, to deploy them in their life in a way that feels meaningful, and then to share it with other people so we can all continue to learn together and really share in that democratization of information. You can find Explore the Space on any platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Go find us. Please subscribe to the show. We've got tons of content coming. We're going to have lots and lots of content in 2019, and I don't want anyone to miss out on anything. Please leave us a rating and a review on whatever your favorite platform is. That's an incredibly powerful driver of helping other people find the show. Come and join me on Twitter. I'm at ETS show. I'm very active on social media. I love interacting with people. I love discussing my show, other people's shows, things that are going on in the world around us. It's a ton of fun. It's really exciting. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Things that I'm doing well, things that you like about the show, things that we can do better, let me know. And I love to get feedback from fans. It's, it's incredibly interesting and compelling. All I can say, we got 100 down. And the next stretch of time is going to be amazing. We're going to be doing more content. We've got some really interesting things coming up. We may or may not be looking at getting out live in front of an audience. We may or may not be thinking about doing any number of creative and innovative and fun things because the world of podcasting itself is just absolutely exploding. I'm delighted to be a part of it. I am absolutely thrilled to have all of you along for the ride. So without further ado, let's jump in. Episode number 100. I thought long and hard, who do I want to have as the 100th guest on this podcast? There's obviously lots of lots of people I could have invited But I actually, I'm really pleased with the decision that I've made. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm a third generation physician. My grandfather, Sidney Shapiro, was a doctor. My father, Des Shapiro, was a doctor. And the 100th guest of Explore the Space is my dad. So my father, Des Shapiro, was a practicing nephrologist. He spent his life in medicine. He took the profession of medicine to, I would argue, the level that all of us 
hope to get to who work in healthcare. And for those who need healthcare, he's the type of professional that you want to have on your side. And I couldn't think of anyone else to have this conversation with. So, Padre, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much, Mark. Firstly, congratulations on your 100th podcast. Very proud of you, and it's a fantastic achievement. And thank you for inviting me. It's an honor, and it's an absolute compliment that you want me on the show. And I'm looking forward to it. Outstanding. So we've got lots and lots of things we can discuss, obviously. Something that's really important to me, when I get asked the question of why I went into medicine, right? That's the first question that you get asked. And the parallel to that, when they find out that you're the son or daughter of a doctor, is did your parents make you go into medicine? And so let's start with that for you, because you really have spent your whole life in medicine. And, and one of the things that's unique about your journey is you really were the, the sort of Doogie Hauser before there was Doogie Hauser. You were a medical student when you were 16 years old. That's not the normal trajectory that anybody goes on. And obviously you were intellectually prepared. How did you end up going into medicine in the first place? Was it something that was that you had agency over? Was it something you were empowered around? Or was it, here's the path, you're walking this path? Well, actually, it is an amazing story. And I remember it very clearly. As you know, Dad, my, my dad was a doctor, your grandfather. Dad was a doctor. He was a family doc um, in a very small town. and Everybody loved him. And when I was four years old, I made my own little doctor set. <laughs> and it was a little cardboard uh, case. And uh, I wrote the name of it, and the name was Dr. U. B. Well. Uh, I used to get <laughs> syringes from him, and then they're all broken, cracked syringes. They were glass then. I used to tape them up. I would uh, break up little pieces of peppermint to make tablets, and I would tie a pillow, tie the corners, and I would, the corners would be arms, and I would inject the arms. I never seriously thought of any other career other than being a doctor since I was four years old. And then um, it was just, that's what it was going to be. And I went to school when I was four, first grade, when I was four years old. We were in a small town. Dad had agency over the, over the decisions at the school. And um, I finished high school at 15 and a half. Jumped on a train for three days for a thousand miles and uh, went to medical school. I spent six years there. Graduated uh, when I was 21 and a half. It's sort of interesting, uh, thinking about my childhood, while young kids are doing baseball cards and really getting into other things, I was actually getting into medicine in that same intensity, which I think is why I remember so much of it. I can remember lectures from 1962, 1963, 1964, almost word for word, wow. just like you can remember baseball cards. It is an amazing thing, and I have absolutely loved my career and it was it's been an absolute gift to me so was there a point where you felt like i am called to this or that you felt like i have i have a gift i have this expansive memory i have the ability to connect with other people was there a point at which you i think transitioned from you know a student to saying this is something i not only can do for the rest of my life not only do I want to do this for the rest of my life, I should do this for the rest of my life. Well, education was a little bit prescribed back. It was the English system. South Africa had uh, two medical schools. It was a six-year curriculum. One year followed the next. You didn't have a lot of decision-making to make. It was okay. prescribed subjects. Right. And so by the time you were finished, you were basically looking to get internships in you know, four out of six hospitals. Yeah. So pretty much by the time you were baked right. is when the time you started thinking so about So you had things. the blinders on while you were in the oven, while you were cooking. As exactly. You said. Yeah. We were just on a track and it was 24 hours a day. Yeah. We lived in residence. We lived it. We played it. Yeah. It was our lives. Yeah. Yeah. That path is interesting because for lots of us now, and that's one of the things that I want to do with this conversation is the juxtaposition and the lessons that we can draw out from the career that you've had. I think is what's important. We all, I think now pay a lot of attention to balance in life, especially in training, thinking about other things that might be fulfilling. And also knowing that as you're in training, that, you know, that idea of how do I take care of myself? How do I get through this 
or my gosh, I can't get through this. As you were training, as you were in the crucible, were there ever stretches for you in South Africa with your friends? You're still a teenager where you're saying, forget it, or I can't do this, or bring it. All I want is more, 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 because this is, this is the best. More, more, more. Yeah. I never once thought it wasn't for me and I couldn't do it. Wow. And I was very lucky even after I graduated and even after we came here. I had a wife, your mother, who was incredibly supportive. And I never, uh, I probably was of the generation where work probably came first. Uh-huh. Um, and things have certainly changed now. Yeah. But it was not, It was just no option for me. Yeah, it was just yeah. what had to be done. This is what had to be done. Yeah. So before we get to you and mom getting on the airplane and coming to the United States, what would you say, give me one of the highlights. I, I think I might know what it is. I'm going to guess at what it is. But I want to know, if you were to say you did medical school, you did residency in South Africa. So over the course of that, probably almost a decade of training, the best professors, incredible schools, brilliant people all around you. Was there one moment or one sort of anecdote that, you know, that's the one, wow, I cannot believe I got to see and participate in that? There are so many things. <laughs> um, I th- probably the earliest one was we did anatomy and we had our own cadaver. Okay. And uh, we had a very eccentric uh, curator of the, of the anatomy lab. Yeah. And, I mean, you're talking 18-year-olds <laughs> hanging around cadavers. It was pretty outrageous. <laughs> but so I have optimal. to say, there was, yeah. some, there was always respect behind it. Of course. But it was very, um, it was very, I remember that a lot. Yeah. Can I tell you the one that I remember the yeah. most? So you told me the story years and years ago of being there when the person who would then donate the first heart for the first heart transplant came to the hospital and being a part of that whole milestone of modern healthcare being a part of the first heart transplant. But the part that sticks out to me the most is the story that you told me about when everyone went to see the patient, everybody washed their hands in a common basin of water and everybody dried their hands on the same towel and that everybody had to put their hands on and examine the patient. That that was part of the patient. Exactly. It's this common bucket of water. Everyone's hands go in. And one one bar of soap, Life Boy soap, a little red square of soap, (laughs) sticking in a congealed container. How many people are left on the planet that that are telling that story? Well, that story, as you know, was just the 50th anniversary of the heart transplant. Right, right. I was involved with that because I was doing a kidney rotation at the time. Barnard was an absolute character. We could spend the whole night talking about that. And we would round on the patient every day. Remember, for one, firstly, there was no O2 sat meters. There was a bird ventilator, which was a pressure ventilator. And we had to have, the only way you could do a pH was a, or O2 was to inject, to puncture the radial artery. So you really so had. any O2 sat was an, was an ABG, was an arterial blood arterial gas. Arterial blood gas oh that we God. had to draw. <laughs> of course. So you had to, firstly, so you would know. You had to really you, want it. And if it was yeah. off hours, you'd actually go down to the lab and perform it and yourself. Right, yeah. So that's how you knew when you really wanted. So we actually looked for cyanosis. Uh-huh. We would turn off the tungsten lights, yeah. turn on ordinary lights, and look to see if he was cyanosed. Because if we wanted to do a blood gas, it was a real commitment. Just and then you're thinking, it. is this really going to change management? Because if not... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the bird doesn't give 100%, so they would be on a, on a tent as well as that. Wow. It was incredible. And wow. you had a man who was driven very little was known about it he was very dogmatic yeah and it was an amazing time would you say that the best skill and it's hard to rank them i was always impressed with your commitment to the physical examination to using your powers of observation to using your tactile skills it's an art that we all know is moving i'm not saying it's going away but it is certainly in an evolution um would you say that that foundational skill, was that something that you learned at a level beyond most, not, not just you, but you and all the people around you, that that was something that puts you head and shoulders above? Well, I think that is true. And one thing I was thinking about was when we did exams, there was no such thing as multiple choice. Mm-hmm. We did essays, mm-hmm. short paragraph answers, mm-hmm. and uh, what we call a viva, which was a written uh, an oral exam mm-hmm. with, a t- with an examiner. When you do an essay, you are not only know the answer, you're aware of your knowledge. Mm-hmm. A multiple choice is not particularly good at knowing whether you're going to apply your knowledge to that particular case. I think you're being generous. 
it has no value. Has, in, yeah, right. right. Don't get me started on multiple so, choice yeah. exams. I think that's true. So right, we, right. so so you're aware. So if you want to talk about SP, you know everything. So what we would do is we would go every organ of the body. We would practice what diseases would affect that. Uh-huh. We could tell you every possible thing that would go wrong with a nail. Clubbing, oh, wow. uh, and we would practice it. Neck veins, is it an A wave? Is it a C wave? Is it yeah, a B wave? Yeah. Is there EFA? I mean, there's so a couple of people that I've met on social media. There's a couple of attendings at Oregon Health Sciences and at Baylor College of Medicine where I went. And when we're done with this podcast, I'm going to show you the stuff that they're doing because it will reaffirm your faith in right. the future of medicine. Oh, good. Because they're getting patients. You know, they're covered. The patients give consent. They sign consent. But they're examining the they're examining right. the, the, the A wave and all of these wonderful things. You'll love it. It's fantastic. I love so it. So it's not dead, Dad. It's, it's good. Dead. I'm glad it's not dead. <laughs> because really, those things are actually bifurcation and decision-making. Right, right, right. I mean, if you know the volumes, if somebody's neck vein's up, yeah. you know which algorithm to go to. Right, right. If you're sure they're up or sure they're not up, that's really helpful. What is the role, because this is something that I learned after residency, was the role of when you're doing physical examination, because I love it. I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy it because, as you say, right, it's helping me down my diagnostic and therapeutic pathways, but it's helping me connect with my patient too. They want me to put my hands on them, right? They want me to lay on the hands and get to work. But what I find to be really empowering to give my patients a sense of ownership and a sense of participation is I narrate the exam. I tell them what I'm seeing. I tell them what I'm doing. Hey, I'm going to feel your thyroid gland. I'm going to feel to see if I can get a sense of how big it is. Is there something that feels abnormal? I'll then do it. And then I'll say that felt perfectly normal. I'll listen to the lungs. Oh my gosh, I can hear that fluid that I was telling you about. I can hear it crackling around in there. We got to get that out. And here's how we're going to do it. Was that part of how you did your examinations or was that, was it just something where you just would execute and, and move on? We would execute and move on. Yeah. Remember, that was a day, A, a lot of our patients would, because it was such a large minority group, which means there was this incredible case mix of very severe diseases, but we couldn't really communicate in their language. Oh, okay. So there was not a lot of communication on the details. Mm-hmm. There would be communication on what to expect. Yeah. But so no, we wouldn't know. But what about that sense of connectivity? Even if you can't connect oh, with them verbally, just that act of like lifting their hand and holding their fingers up so you can look at their fingernails, you know, and feeling for all of the, that. I mean, you must have felt that's, that part of it must have been huge for you. I think that is very important. And I think that's being lost now. I think the touchingness uh-huh. is being lost. Yeah. Feeling for a flapping tremor, looking for clubbing, all those things. I agree with you completely. Because for the patient, you're not doing any of that no. stuff. You're just holding their hand. That's why in my office, I always took my own blood pressures because uh-huh. it's part of touching. That's right. And and doing it posturally as well, by the way. Uh, but uh, so that I use that as an op- yeah. opportunity for. Uh, and I think that it's, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I don't ever want that to be an anachronism. I don't want that to ever be old school. You're, you're, you're lifting your patient's hand up off the bed. Of course, I'm looking for specific things, but for them, I'm holding their hand. Right. Am I feeling how cool their hand is? Of course I am. Right. Am I feeling their radio pulse? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. But I'm just holding their hand. Totally. And no other profession in the world, you taught me this, no other profession in the world gets to do that. No. And I, you stroke their face and That's you right. want to feel if their nose is cold. Yep. Absolutely. I but agree with you're you. You're just touching it's their face. It's a privilege. Yep, yep, yep. It is an absolute privilege. I... I uh, you know, I do teach, uh, do some teaching, and I always often say that um, if you want a, a, a job that's sacred, yeah. what other job can you go up to somebody, yeah. introduce yourself, <laughs> strip them, yep. invade their body parts, tell them things that may or may not kill them, and at the end they thank you and pay you for it? <laughs> uh, what, I mean, what kind of job <laughs> is that? When you frame it like that, it's completely bizarre. No, I agree with you. Uh, your philosophy around medicine was really, really impactful for me. And I want to kind of take that leap literally across the Atlantic Ocean when you and mom left South Africa and came to the United States. But one of the things that I've reflected on more recently, and you and I actually haven't really talked about in a lot of detail, especially sitting in the place that we sit now in the 21st century around being somebody who was not from the United States, who when you came to this country, you were not an American citizen. You became an American citizen when I was, I think, seven and I remember going to your naturalization ceremony, you did all of your training overseas until you came to the United States to do your fellowship um, in, and become a, become a nephrologist, become a kidney specialist. 
what was that journey like for you, not as a physician, but as a being viewed as a physician who is what we now term, and unfortunately, I think it's a term of derision, a foreign medical graduate? What was that journey like? Was it a negative thing? Did it matter? Did people care? Were you singled out one way or the other? Or were you just, hey, cool, you're a doc, let's get to work? Actually, it worked to my advantage because the degree in those days was so very well regarded. It was because people knew that it was an English training yeah. with the incredible uh, sophistication of the caseload. Uh -huh. There'd been quite a few advances that had come out. Uh, patent ductus was the therapy of that was a South African. And so actually, and I was complimented when I arrived because I went to the VA and I was an intern and I was going to be paid as an intern. And then when they saw my work, my professor called me and said, you need to go to the... Uh, to the office because uh, you need to be paid as a fellow. Oh wow! So that I didn't was know that. absolutely. Oh my so god! That was yeah. I wasn't. I was singled out in a positive way. Okay. Wow. So that was pretty nice. So when so you and I have discussed this issue. When you think about right, you spent your career in the United States doing incredible things that we'll talk about. There is this trend now, and I find it frankly alarming, where the term foreign medical graduate. Is a very it's an all-encompassing term. We know forty percent of American primary care physicians are do their medical school training, not residency, but go to medical school in another country. I really worry that that label is is one that is being used in a as a pejorative in some ways. And I think to myself, if that if if people were moving in that direction, what would have happened to you if if, it, if things were different now? What would have happened to me and my sister and, and the life that we've all been so lucky to have? Have you reflected on that, or do you do you sense that same sort of concern, or am I overblowing it? Uh, I've I've sensed the concern from some of the issues I've heard from you. Frankly, I've I've felt nothing but respect for them, and it's even in the professional sphere where you go to lectures and you, yeah. seminars. Yeah. So I've never felt them being derided. I have heard stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it would be a total tragedy, a total disaster. Uh, if people want to become biased about it. Yeah. And um, my recommendation for people who are biased about it would be that they sign a binding clause that if they're so biased, they would promise never ever to see one if they ever got sick. Yeah. Sort of like the anti-vaxxers. <laughs> uh, if, <laughs> right. if you're so opinionated, yeah. it's very good, but make sure you keep your opinion consistent over time, especially when things get bad. That's right. That's, right. That's one of the things that I've always loved about you is you... You hold people to their word, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's right, and especially when things are tough. You can't always have it both ways. Right. It, it, I appreciate that, and I think over time I'm going to circle back to you again, not on this podcast but down the road because I, I worry about it more than you do, um, and not that either one of us is right or wrong. I just – people work so hard to get where they go. The United States still is the place where people want to come to be a physician, to train, to work in this environment, and if we turn that off – it's going to be, as you said, that's a catastrophe waiting to happen. Totally. Yeah. People need to be welcomed here. They need to be wanted here. And look, they're, they're smart. They're ready. They're, they do their residencies here. They're, they need to be respected in that manner. All right. I, I, <laughs> I had to vent a little bit because that one's been on my mind. No, I, I know that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you come to the United States and you start your career. We, we grew up in a small town. We're recording this in the house that I grew up in, in Santa Rosa, California, just north of San Francisco. Not a huge place. It's now a quarter of a million people. It's an incredible place to live. I mean, the density of really bright people here is is tremendous. But at the time, you weren't affiliated with a university. You put your own shingle out, and you you built a career. I want to harvest the the things in that work on on two parallel paths from you. I want to start not inside the hospital. I want to start with making a life in medicine. What were the things about saying, I'm setting aside the fact that you were in a new country, right? You'd finished fellowship. You'd been here for a while. You, you come to a new community, which we all do. You finished your training. You're married. You, I guess Karen was already born when you came to Santa Rosa. So you're going to make a life here. You're going to have another kid in another year. That's me. What would you say were the things that were exhilarating about that building a life, building a profession, learning how to make money, learning how to create a family atmosphere while you're a physician in solo practice on call all the time. What were the things that scared you? What were the things that were really difficult? We said, Oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm, if I'm on the right road here. So the first thing that was really exhilarating was buying a home. 
Yeah. And uh, so we we had came up from Los Angeles, had seven thousand dollars, and we decided we want to get a home right away and settle down. And uh, we bought this home, as yeah. you know, and that was. I know we're sitting in it. We're selling <laughs> pictures of you and I. I know. I know. <laughs> That's fun. So fun. And then, of course, so then we had it started off at the local community yeah, hospital. Yeah. And then on Wednesday mornings, we had grand rounds. And one of the most exhilarating things of all of my life was when over the loudspeaker for the whole hospital, they said, we want to congratulate Dr. Shapiro on the birth of his son. <laughs> and that was at grand rounds at the hospital. So oh, that was wow. pretty awesome. That's great. I never had fears. I don't know why. Wow. In fact, I had, I'd never sec- had second thoughts about it. Yeah. And I think that... One of the things that was strange to me is when people would say, I'd come to the States, that I'm going to, I'm going to be a doctor, they'd say, you're going to be rich. i go, what? I had no idea what they were talking about. I can honestly tell you that I never thought about the money. Yeah. And, and I've, I've thought about where that came from, and I don't know if I've told you before, but I was the first person in this town to accept Medicare assignment. I did not first, know that. First, I didn't think of it twice. I thought it was the right thing to do. Because back in the day, you, the docs would charge the patient whatever they liked. Yeah. And then the patient would have to go to Medicare to get what Medicare would pay and just get it refunded bit by bit. And the, when Medicare came out and said, well, we'll pay you directly, but we'll tell the doc what it will be, I signed up. I said, that's good enough for me. Wow. And further than that, I never, ever knew what insurance my patients had. Ever. And I never in my whole life sent a patient to collection. Huh. And in fact, that legacy passed down to my partners in the office. Yeah. And they appreciated it. Because being in nephrology where the patients, it's tough enough having kidney disease. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's even worse having kidney disease and not being able to afford all the care and all the co-pays yeah. and that. Yeah. So I just, I knew it was the right thing. And I've thought about it. And it's probably from my dad. Yeah. Because my dad was a family doc, and I used to help him send the bills out at the end of the month. Yeah. And my job was, if they were in arrears, he'd say one injection, seven shillings. And if they were in arrears one month, I'd write, please pay. Uh, if they were two months, I'd write, please, please. And then three <laughs> months would be, please, please, please. <laughs> and then it would be thrown away. And then forget it. So well, that's probably yeah. where I learned it. Yeah. And then on the professional side, when you're actually seeing patients... I'll ask you that same question I asked about when you were in South Africa about what you felt like maybe your singular achievement was. I, I I know what I would probably suggest that it is, although my thought process around it is a lot more sophisticated now, um, but it's the one that sticks with me the most. And then the same thing, in the hospital, seeing critically ill patients, in the office, seeing somebody and saying, hey, it looks like you're you have really severe kidney disease and we have to start talking about dialysis or something else. What were the things that were exhilarating? What were those singular moments? And was there ever anything you'd walk into a room or you'd walk into a circumstance where you you just woof my heart rate is high and I'm nervous or I'm stressed out? I never felt heart rate was high or nervous or stressed I out. I just can't believe it. What I would oh, I <laughs> mine mean, was high today. <laughs> thing would happen if I I mean I remembered yeah. uh, when I was in training we had a cardiac ICUs had just started. Yeah. And we used to do intracardiac injections, believe it or not, not intravenous. Yeah. So we'd give the meds intracardiac, which was totally brutal. And um, I had a young asthmatic colored woman, I can still see her face now, and she needed to be resuscitated. I injected her heart with uh, adrenaline and her heart stopped. Needless to say, that was like very traumatic. Yeah. But it wasn't like I had dissonance. I just complete panic. And, yeah. and then I used to do surgery, and I had at times when I, uh, I was doing an ectopic pregnancy once. Um, in South Africa, there was such a caseload that you would do stuff because you were there, and you had two hands. Right, right. So I was doing an ectopic pregnancy, and the uh, placenta had invaded the bowel. And I wasn't, very, I wasn't experienced at all. And everywhere I touched, I made a hole in the bowel. And then I slowly realized, this has got to stop. I can't keep doing this. Put, put the swabs on the top and said, call a consultant, and we just waited. Yeah. Very traumatic, yeah. very traumatic. Yeah. But yeah. it didn't stop me carrying on. Right. I think one of the things that really helped me, and I'm not sure, I could somehow feel what patients were going through. 
So you I never, absolutely could. I never could. I never judged them somehow, yeah. especially. Yeah. And and that's why I do. I, know I always I picked up on that when you yeah. would talk about your patients that there was a level of empathy and connection yeah. with them, not where it was detrimental for you, but yeah. it was. And that's something that I've always right. held in very high esteem and and strive to be able to do. For me, it's a struggle because sometimes it crosses over where it really affects me. I, I don't keep that boundary, and then I carry it for a long time. I mean, I have my own cases that, you know, same sorts of things that did really affect me. Um, and they, I can still see the faces. And one of the most amazing stories for me was you came to visit, you and mom came down to visit me when I was a resident and I had had a really bad night in the ICU before you guys came down. And there was a guy that had coded while I was standing there and we'd successfully resuscitated him. And it was incredibly traumatic. It was a long code. It was just awful. And he survived and you came to visit and we got permissions for you to come on rounds. And if you remember, you came in his room with me and he was crying and I was crying. And then all of a sudden, one of his family members said, oh my gosh, you're also Dr. Shapiro. And his daughter's boyfriend's mother was your patient and yeah. he knew you right. and he gave you a big hug. It right. was absolutely surreal. Right. It is amazing. And I, I say, don't lose that. Yeah. It's really hard, but you know that's life, yeah, and that's yeah. it's. But you do get, and I was starting to get it after forty years. What's called compassion fatigue, uh-huh. and you you just run out because it's there's always so much yeah. going on. But I, it's, that's what I really enjoyed. I mean, I have obituaries here from patients, and yeah, yeah. Um, and I think one thing I, I would say I learned early that was somebody called me to task. We used to work in the ER, what's called casualty, Saturday nights, and we'd go and stitch, and people would get stabbed. They'd get stabbed by the same guy every Saturday night. Right. I had this frequent flyer. He'd just been stabbed by the same friend for the third week in a row, and I was stitching up basically the same stab wound. And I was mouthing off and being quite judgmental. And my attending just happened to walk in while I was talking to him. And he said, put your stuff down. I put my stuff down. He said, come. Took me out, and he said, don't you ever judge a patient like that again. Your job is to cure people and help them. You have no idea what brought him here. You have no idea what his life is like. Don't you ever talk to patients like that again. And I shrunk down to about two millimeters in size. But that really affected me. Yeah, yeah. Because it's true, you know, we, we have a lot to say about patients. We have no clue what they go through. And we and society didn't give us an uh, a license to judge them. That's right. We got what we got to take care of them. That's right. So those things that you're describing, though, those that ability to connect with people, that ability to not vent judgments or presume, that ability to love the learning, that I think it feels like are the, what I'm hearing is that's the stuff that really sustained you for the full four decades scope of this great career that you had. For people who want that, for medical students or people who maybe want to go to medical school or for me, I'm in attending, I'm in my whatever, 13th or 14th years in attending. What would you say? Or for patients who want their doctor to have that, that's all I want. I want a doctor. I don't need them to be a Nobel Prize winner. I need them to care about me. I need them to be kind at three in the morning when I'm whatever. What are the levers that you would suggest? What are the things that people should think about and the muscles to build so that they have those skills. Because I would also argue that when you have those skills, that's the stuff that keeps medicine feeling aspirational, feeling wonderful, feeling invigorating, feeling as special right, as you described it and as you had sort of made obvious for me as I was growing up. What are those muscles and levers that you would advise people to, to really be mindful of and to try to build? Well, from the provider side, I think that nobody can invade the relationship that you have when you walk into the room. All the issues we have between the computers and the, and the requirements and the paperwork, when you walk into the room, you're, it's between you and the patient. That space between you, that sacred space, nobody actually can affect it. It's totally your responsibility how it goes off. And I think one of the ways is to take a deep breath before you go in and get all those conflicted agendas out of the way, those angers, whatever they are, I shouldn't be on call, this is ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. Because the patient, it's got nothing to do with the patient. And then you dedicate yourself for however many minutes it is to giving them what you would probably want for yourself. And there's things to be learned, you know, completed. Did you understand what I have to say? That still is a sacred moment. 
And I think giving people permission to pass on if they need to pass on, helping people make decisions, it's incredible stuff. The small, tiny details are amazing. You know that. Yeah. And if you skip the details, you could affect somebody's life forever. That's the amazing thing about medicine, in which I continue to marvel at, is the small details that can have a lifelong effect on a patient. Yeah. And it's our obligation not to forget them, which is always wonder why people don't like checklists. They think checklists are an invasion. I think checklists are an aid memoir to make sure you don't forget something. Mm -hmm. And we should we are invited to use it that way, not be yeah. annoyed at them. Yeah. So the space can't be invaded. It is a sacred space between patients and doctor. The other hand, I think we do have serious issues. It's student debt, caseload, hospital requirements, it is broken. There's no question it's broken. And the way to deal with it is to deal with it away from the bedside though. So you still get the joy of helping patients. Mm, that's that that's is, the hard part. That's the, that's the hard part, but I love the way that you describe that, that deep breath, that leave it outside the room so that you still get the joy. I love that. I'm, yeah. I'm taking that with me when I go Thank back to you. that you still get that joy. And it's joy when it's hard. It's joy when they're crying. It's joy when you're oh. doing, because nobody on the planet gets to do what you're doing in that moment nobody. for another human being. It doesn't exist. And we're fortunate to get to do that work. And the way that you just described that is very, very special. And uh, I think that that's something that we can all really carry on. And I think it's also important for people who are with a physician to ask their physician and say, doc, do you feel distracted right now? Uh -huh. And say, you know what? I need you right now. I need your attention right now. Right. And I've been doing this for a while. I've seen a lot of patients. You've seen tenfold. I don't think patients have that feeling of agency and security to tell their doc, look, I know there's a lot going on. I know you're busy. I need your undivided attention. I need your focus. I need your brilliance because this sucks. And I, I need some help right now. Well, one thing I always try to make a point of, because when people know that a nephrologist is coming, that's pretty scary. Yeah. And they've never met me. And yeah. I would always, if it was true, I would say, I want you to know one thing, you're not going to die. Yeah. And the, that basically it was over. They didn't care yeah. after that. Yeah. Because that's all they were worried yeah, about. Right. They right. don't want to know about this and that and the other in the emergency room when this is the first time yeah. they've heard it. Yeah. So knowing those things and trying to anticipate what their biggest fears were and diffusing it. Yep. The that's other, one of the great things that I learned from you and from another great mentor of mine, thinking about and, and asking people what are their biggest concerns and addressing them in the moment. I don't know how many people I've seen with atypical chest pain. For me, you know, we know that we're going to admit them, we're going to risk stratify them, and they're going to go home tomorrow. For them, they're thinking, am I having a heart attack? Am I going to die? I can't. Can I work tomorrow? When do I eat? I address those things up front as well quickly done. as I can. Nice. And that's what I learned from you. And that's what yeah. I learned from my other great mentor and coach, Steve Beeson, that find those things quickly. Those are their questions. It doesn't, right. you know, get, get to that material fast. Because then there's that level of trust. Okay, this person understands me. They know what's important here. And thank God I'm not having a heart attack. Well, that's a relief. Absolutely. No question. And I, the other part of that was from, from the patient's point of view, I think that because things have changed so much, yeah. which has been a privilege for me to see the changes. Yeah. And one of the privileges was being a Kaiser doc as well as a private practice doc for over 13 years and seeing the evolution to a care where it was prepaid um, and there weren't, wasn't conflicted agendas around that, is that I think the future of medicine is no question it's shift work now. Uh -huh. And shift work is not going to go away. So even if you love your doctor, he's only going to be, or she, is only going to be around eight hours a day anyhow. So my advice to people is find the system that will do the right thing for you uh -huh. and find your love somewhere else. Yeah, You cannot expect to love your doctor, and certainly you can't expect your doctor to love you, but you can expect kindness, you can expect thoughtfulness, you can expect a complete visit, and you can demand the right thing. Yeah. But the love, those days are gone, because it's shift work. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know yourself, 
some of the best docs in town, yeah, they're gone half the year. Right. Well, what's the point of that? <laughs> right, right. And then right. so the guy's taken over from yeah. him. You've never seen him in yeah, your life before. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's the, the expectations. I think are changing on both sides. I agree. I never understood what burnout meant, to be honest. Interesting. But I get it now because yeah. I never had student debt. Uh huh. And those that, that's a huge thing, and the price of housing, and so that is huge, and. And I know I read like burn, chasing the dollar is a big part of burnout because there's no joy in right, earning money. Right, right, there's right. no joy. Yeah, um, That's one of the things that I've always respected about you and have tried to learn from you too is that you had a long career and you allowed yourself and actually really, I think, pushed yourself to continue to evolve and to be empathic for people that were coming up behind you. You wanted to understand my student debt. You yeah. wanted When I had difficulties and I did think about quitting and I was struggling, it wasn't suck it up, man. Right. It's a great job. Everything's fine. It was okay. Well, let's talk this through. And right. I give you a lot of credit for really trying to seek to understand those difficulties oh, you. because you're right. I mean, physician burnout, it, one of the things that I think is a real difficulty for physicians who are feeling that sense of burnout, and it's a big term, there's a lot of variables there, but when they feel it being dismissed by generations that have gone before or by the population at large, it makes it worse because mm-hmm. their feelings are not validated. Right. And their feelings are very genuine. These are smart, caring people totally. who are really struggling. Mm-hmm. And the first step in solving it is to acknowledge that. And I think that you've always been very, very good at that. And speaking of things that you've always been very good at, because I do want to kind of pivot to this, I want to talk about crowning achievements. And I, I know when I think about the scope of your career, there's two. Um, one is that you did the first kidney transplant in Sonoma County. And I remember that vividly. I remember you waking me up to say you were going to the hospital. I remember watching it on the news the next day. And then you ran this big program for many, many years. And the other one that I love the most, because I moved back to Santa Rosa three years ago to take a different job and uh, you know came back to town to see you started your nephrology practice. And now it's however five or six associates they're all fabulous. They're great people. They're all cut from the same cloth as you. But I see patients that you were their doc. And when they talk about you, it's so cool. They, it never clicks because our accents are different. But as soon as I say, do you remember my dad? Oh, my gosh. Was your dad? Dad's trip, was it the guy? With, yeah, that was my dad. And then it's five minutes of stories. Just so every single time. Did you know that that was happening? When I first started telling you, hey, dad, I saw one of your patients in the hospital today. And guess what happened? And they're demanding that I text you and they want a picture and how's your dad doing? Did you know that that was happening? Did you ever dream that that would be something you'd leave behind? It is amazing. I mean, you can't imagine what it's like to have your own son walk in your shoes like that, to have the esteem that they held in. It is amazing. And to hear the stories. Yeah. I mean, I know that that happens. It happens a lot to me. Yeah. And I love it. it. And, I, I love and that's it. the beauty of living in the same town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see people bump into people. Yeah. And transplant is an amazing. I used to call transplant obstetrics and adult medicine because you genuinely give people a rebirth. Yeah. And we did start a program here. It was fantastic. It went for about 15 years. There are so many stories out of that program uh, from finding out that a dad, your dad ain't your dad and your, and your dad don't know when we're doing living donor yeah. matches to... Yeah being sued for a, a, a kidney arriving from Philadelphia that had cancer in it, which had nothing to do with us, to also, I mean, the stories are incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, crowding achievements. You know, I some of them are the very smallest things. Or they were wives coming to me and saying, thank you for letting my husband stop dialysis. Wow. It's being torture. Yeah. Because, you know, giving people a, a permission to do what they really want to do is is a gift as well. That's right. That's right. Really, because there's it so is. much pressure. Yep. End of life stuff. There's so much pressure, as you know. Yeah. Um, and I find that, uh, yeah, a lot of those were very um, crowning achievements. And I think one of them is that I've had such a. It's been such a gift to see medicine over so many years. Yeah. I mean, I have what happened to me in obstetrics. What happened to me in anesthesia. What happened to me when I first came here with the celebrity at at the. Uh, oh my God! That's right. Yeah. But uh, so there are all these vignettes that are so dramatic. And then the idea of, and I, for some reason I come back to it a lot, maybe one of the longest continuous subscribers to The Lancet. That's right. It That's is. Right. I, I, when I think about that, I can barely 
comprehended. Yeah, yeah. I've been reading the Lancet since 1964. That's right. If I'd kept them all, it would fill this room. It would fill fact, the room, I know. I read one last night on the advances in polycystic kidney disease. Yeah. The advances, right. It could, <laughs> it could, have, been, it could have been 10 lines, but they made, you know. they got to make something Because every single guy is being uh, supported by Tolvaptam, the, the drug, <laughs> which is the tragedy of medicine. Actually. Yeah, I know. So anyhow. <laughs> You know, the holdout. All of the New England Journal of Medicine subscribers are like, oh, come on. I know. <laughs> That's yeah. so great. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say it's the things that you just described. Um, I am, I love answering the question of why did I become a doctor? Because people find out that I'm a third generation physician and it's like, well, it was written in stone. And it wasn't. And they say, well, did your parents push you? No, they didn't. Mm-hmm. I would argue that there were probably long stretches where you and mom were like, oh, my God, I really hope he doesn't do this because with his, you know, his temperament and his makeup and some of the things that he's working on as he's growing and developing, it's going to be a struggle. Um, I was really fortunate to come to it of my own volition. And part of it was because of that joy. Part of it was because you didn't make it transactional. You know, we had a wonderful life. We have a great, we had a great family. You were available. It was hard. I mean, there were definitely stretches where you'd be gone a lot and you would miss things, but we always understood why it was never, it was never a competition. It was never the patient before us. It was, this is, what dad does. And we were really proud of it. And I think we carried that. The other one is a single thing that you told me once. And when I transitioned into medical leadership and I had people asking me, what do I do in this situation? This is what I recalled. And we had a conversation a long time ago. I think I was a medical student where we had a patient on my service who was undocumented and came to the hospital and needed dialysis. And it was that frustration of, why can't this get set up and they've been dialyzed and they got to go and the ER's full. And you took me aside. It was a phone call and it was Mark in that moment. Your job is to take care of that patient. You discharge patients when it is safe to discharge patients. If there are issues around what makes it safe, that is not your problem. That's the hospital's problem. And it's their job to figure it out. You cannot discharge that patient because someone is telling you to discharge the patient. If they want to discharge patients, they should go to medical school and get a license and and they can discharge whom they like. In that situation, that patient is looking to you for help to keep them alive and to make sure they get dialysis. Your job is to get them that. And it will the pressure will get to the point where the institution will figure it out. But in the meantime, you need to be the path of most resistance, not the path of least resistance. And I remember that conversation vividly. And so when I have teammates come to me and say, you know, the case manager wants me to discharge it, I tell them, is the patient ready? Where are they going to go? Oh, we don't know yet. Don't discharge them. They cannot go. The patient is first. The team is second. You're third. If the case manager is telling you to discharge the patient and you don't think they're ready to go, that's team before patient. That's hospital before patient. And that's wrong. If you put the patient in the center every single time, you're going to be fine. And I, that comes up every single day. And that I learned from you. That is wonderful. I appreciate that. I'm glad you, there's a story of when I, so we were in training and we, I did obstetrics and the uh, administrator said that we had to discharge the patients uh, on the second day post, post C-section. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of our attendees said, uh, called us in very early one day and he said, I want you to uh, wheel all the post C-section patients down. <laughs> yeah. And we wheeled every patient, every day two post C-section patients yeah. down to the administrator's office. <laughs> we opened the chart to the order section and yeah. we put a pen on it. Uh-huh. We said a note said, post-op day two, the administrator, please discharge the patient. <laughs> I mean, which, of course, you couldn't do that today. Yeah, yeah. That made a big difference, yeah, yeah. impression. And when I first came here, the patient that uh, came... Uh, for dialysis from Mexico, yeah. the hospital said, I need to discharge him. And I said, no, no, and they, they actually set him up and paid for his discharge yeah. and his dialysis as an outpatient to save them money, right, as, right. which is the right way That's to do right. it. And because the patient wants to go home. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I, the times that I've tangled in the hospital, it's always been around that. Well, and yeah. I think to myself, you know, we all want our parents to be proud of us. And I would argue that when I'm in those moments and someone's pushing me and I'm pushing back and I'm not giving way, and they're frustrated with me, and I tell them I don't care, I know that you're proud of me, and that if I tell you that story, you're going to say, Mark, you did the right thing. Totally. Well, I think one thing, what we have to realize, what we don't have to realize, what, something that's an important concept to what we're doing is the idea of normalization of deviance. Yeah. 
we can do something so often and everybody around us is doing the same thing that we think is right. Yeah. Getting patients out early from the ER, sending them home the next day, not admitting patients to control their hypertension. Those are all variations of deviance that don't have to be the way it is. Right. It, there were days when we would admit patients for hypertension that was uncontrolled. You would admit them, you'd stop all their medicines, you'd dry them as a bone, and then you'd start all over again. You couldn't do that today. I mean, you can fry their renal arteries when it's unproven, to <laughs> yeah. be, but you couldn't do that. There's deviant behavior because agendas get away from us. Mm -hmm. and we. So sometimes you have to physician as activist. That's right. And I think that's an important And concept. that's been actually a recurring theme on the podcast. We've had a number of people who've come and said physicians have their megaphone. Mona Hanna Atisha, that's what she taught me on this podcast. Physicians have a megaphone and they need to keep it turned on. And one of the great things about this conversation aside from getting to have my dad on for the 100th episode, is that idea of exactly what you're saying. There are core principles in medicine that as physicians, we should never, ever get away from. And for patients, they should expect us to never, ever get away from them. And amidst the maelstrom of regulations and things like that, there are fundamentals that if we stick to them, we know we're doing the right thing for patients and it will help us find that sense of joy. And I think that those things that come from someone who's practiced medicine at the highest level for 40 plus years, I think that that is that. And I think hopefully from this conversation will also prove to be part of your long and illustrious legacy. Thank you. I love it. This Thank has you. been really, really cool. I could not yeah. have hoped for a more fun Fantastic. and interesting and engaging hundredth episode. Um, I love the fact that we're sitting in the house that I grew up in. I love the fact that we're surrounded with my son's toys. Exactly. And he's going to hang out here all day with you and mom tomorrow. And I'll go back to work and I'll know why I'm doing it. And I will find that joy. So, Dad, thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for being who you are. I appreciate that. Love you. Love you, Padre. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.